You are listening to NASA in Silicon Valley, episode 72. This is Frank Tavares trying to do an even better Matthew Buffington impression than Abby Tabor from last week, which was a hard act to follow. So Abby Tabor is here with me again, and Abby, tell us who our guest is this week. Okay, well today we actually have two guests. We have Kimberly Enico-Smith, who's the project scientist for Sophia. And I think she's been on the podcast before, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. Kimberly has talked about Sophia before. Sophia is actually a modified airplane that carries a telescope in the back, and this is very cool because it can fly above most of the Earth's atmosphere, and it's also completely mobile. So Mm. this makes a lot of cool science possible. So you can take it wherever in the world you want. Yeah, yeah, exactly, and they do. And that's something we talk about on Mm. on the episode today. But to give you a better idea, um, Kimberly is the boss of all the science, basically, that Sophia does. Mm -hmm. But then Sophia also takes on guest observers, like our Mm. second guest today, who is Michael Person from MIT. So he observes stellar occultations. Now that's something like an eclipse. It's when an object passes in front of a very distant star. Like the kind of like the one we had earlier this year, but with our sun and our moon. Yeah, yeah, it's the same kind of phenomenon, but using a very distant star, the object passes in front of it, and then looking at the light from the star that passes around it, they can learn a lot about that object. <laughs> so Sophia has used this technique to study Pluto and also MU69, which is the next target for the New Horizons space craft and that's a small rocky object way out in the solar system mm-hmm. uh, and thirdly triton which is a moon of neptune so that's something we talk about in the episode today awesome so it sounds like this is academia working with nasa to learn a bunch of cool things about the universe oh definitely yep awesome well as matt likes to always remind everyone we are a nasa podcast but we are not the only nasa podcast uh, we want to give a, a shout out to our friends at the johnson space center that have a podcast called houston we have a podcast um, we actually did a joint episode with them mm-hmm. two episodes ago um, so if you haven't checked that out yet that is definitely worth a listen NASA headquarters also has a new podcast called Gravity Assist it's basically a, a virtual tour of the solar system and yeah before we we jump into our uh, our episode um, just a reminder that we actually have a phone number you can call in with any questions comments concerns leave us a message and we'll figure out how we can integrate that into a, a future episode that number is 650-604-1400. And as always, you can always send us a, a message on social media um, using the hashtag NASA and Silicon Valley on the social media platform of your choice. Uh, but first for today, let's listen to Kimberly Enico Smith and Michael Person. Today, I'm joined by two different people who will be talking to us about SOFIA, the Stratospheric Observatory for Infrared Astronomy. So my two guests today are Dr. Kimberly Enico-Smith from NASA Ames and Dr. Michael Person from MIT. Kimberly, could you start us off by reminding us what exactly SOFIA is? SOFIA, S-O-F-I-A, Stratospheric Observatory for Infrared Astronomy, is a 747 aircraft that we've cut a hole in the side of it and placed a Hubble-sized telescope, a a two-and-a-half-meter telescope. Being an airplane, we fly not above the clouds, but we can go up to about 12.5 kilometers, or about 45,000 feet, in um, altitude that gets us above 99% of the Earth's water vapor. This reveals the infrared universe we can see things that you cannot see when you're stuck on the ground. And so that's why we're an infrared observatory. Um, But we 
or a mar mobile observatory as well, mm -hmm. we can move the plane. And this is uh, one of the key aspects of how Sophia does occultation science. Okay, occultations. I remember occultations from last summer when everyone was abuzz about the solar eclipse, the total solar eclipse. So occultations are somehow similar to an eclipse, right? Michael, could you, could you remind us? Certainly. You study occultations, right? Um, yes, an occultation, fairly simply, is when something passes in front of something else. So mm -hmm. for the solar eclipse, we had our moon passing in front of the sun. Right. What we're observing here from Sophia are what we call stellar occultations, where a body in the solar system passes directly in front of a star. And mm -hmm. when we do that, we can watch the light from the star disappear behind the body and measure how long that takes, so how big the body is. Okay. But if the body has an atmosphere, like Triton does or like Pluto does, then we can watch the um, light slowly disappear as it goes deeper into the atmosphere, and we can learn about the atmosphere, measure its temperature, its pressure, its density, and um, basically get measurements in the atmosphere of a body that we can't get any other way from Earth. Right. That's incredible how much you can know about a body that is so far away, right? Yeah, it's the only way we can um, make these detailed measurements from Earth. If you look at the object directly with a telescope, mm -hmm. it often is just five or six pixels across, five or six little dots on your screen. Oh, yeah. But with the occultation method, as we watch the starlight go away slowly and come back slowly, we can measure at kilometer um, resolution all throughout the atmosphere and learn about you know the structure of the atmosphere, what's in it, et cetera. Yeah, that's incredible. Now, I heard that you have an interesting history with occultations and Uranus's rings. Is, is that true? Did you work with someone who worked on that? Yes, I've been doing occultations for most of my career. When I started, I was, um, as a student, I had the privilege of working with the great Professor James Elliott of MIT. Mm. He did a lot of the pioneering work in occultations for studying solar system bodies, especially those with atmospheres. He, um, in 1977, used the previous flying observatory, the Kuiper Airborne Observatory, to discover the rings of Uranus. Wow. Um, he and his team were actually studying the atmosphere of Uranus and um, perhaps fortuitously or accidentally discovered the rings while they were doing that. Um, but ever since I joined his team, we started doing occultations of small bodies like Triton and Pluto, et cetera. And I've been keeping up the work since he passed away in 2011. Wow. And to point out about the discovery of the Uranus's rings in 1977, I mean, that was prior to the Voyager 2 flyby of the planet, which oh, was in yeah. 1982, I believe. Mm -hmm. So setting the stage, of course, we got wonderful images from a, of a spacecraft that actually can travel to the other world. Right. Um, but you can certainly lot, learn a lot about the object, even just here from Armchair, armchair Earth. Right, Just completely. looking at the occultations. Yeah, that shows us that the kinds of discoveries you can make are not insignificant, and the amount of information you can gather also significant. Interesting. And that was very similar to what happened in Pluto's case, where in 2000 and, or, I'm sorry, back in 1988, yes. um, <laughs> the uh, atmosphere was discovered by stellar occultation, and then in 2015, New Horizons got there to take actual pictures that we hadn't had before. Wow. And we had a series of occultations of Pluto passing in front of a star from 1988 all the way up to the early 2000s, which showed that the atmosphere was changing, ah, which right. led to um, a building need to build the New Horizons spacecraft descended to Pluto to find out what, what actually might be going on. Right. Okay. Yeah. So it lays the groundwork for much future work. 
that gets established later. Yeah. And to be um, the poetry of it all is mm-hmm. after that wonderful flyby from July 2015, uh, Pluto was returned to being back to being an astronomical object again. And mm-hmm. how we are going to study and monitor Pluto's atmosphere until another space mission is 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 uh, brought forth is through occultations. We can use this technique to continue to monitor Pluto's atmosphere, monitor Triton's atmosphere that uh, that Michael has been studying. You have an ability to revisit the problem. Right, right. That's also going to be interesting to the public, I think, who has seen Pluto rise and fall in its status. <laughs> <laughs> People are going to f- like following that. So listening to you two talk about the way this work has evolved and hearing you go back and forth. Can you explain a little bit about how how you work together? Because Michael is a Sophia guest observer, I think. So what does that Um, mean? Scientists at different institutions will will use Sophia? So basically, I um, write proposals to use Sophia, and I put forth a science case saying that the the aircraft would be the perfect platform to do this particular science. Mm -hmm. And those proposals are reviewed by um, NASA and um, experts in various fields. And then when a time is awarded, I get um, to fly aboard the aircraft to gather the data I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. But I'm not actually a you know member of the SOFIA staff or a NASA employee. I work for MIT. Right. And we just um, take the data that we get from SOFIA and then move on and try and understand the science that we can figure out. Mm-hmm. Okay. And on the project side, um, you know, Michael's proposal that was successfully selected to go forth, plus um, dozens and several dozens others um, to be fit within our cycle. For an occultation, what needs to be uh, looked at is where does the plane need to be on what day, at what latitude, longitude, and at what time? Uh And to do a feasibility study on um, can the plane actually get there? Uh, We had an occultation event of MU69, which is another Kuiper Belt object that we observed in July of this past summer. And um, its trajectory was over the South Pacific. In fact, it flew over, we had to fly really north from Christchurch up to the Fiji Islands to catch it. Oh, wow. So we had to do a feasibility study on on can we take the plane to be in the right place at the right time. Okay. Um, My- Michael's um, a study of Triton, Neptune's moon, in October of this year um, was off of, off of the South Atlantic Ocean. Oh, so wow, the plane was positioned to Florida mm-hmm. and then flew over the Atlantic to catch um, that event. For the non-occultation science, the infrared science, you have to look at you know where the object that's been selected to observe is in the sky. So mm-hmm. there are sometimes summertime objects, wintertime objects, northern and southern hemisphere objects, and we move the plane to maximize that. So that's things that we are doing on the project side. Right. So Sophia is all over the place, and <laughs> that of course is the point and the great advantage of an airborne observatory, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's one of the main things that we like about it in the occultation business. A Mm -hmm. lot of observers are interested in SOFIA for its infrared capabilities, the fact that it flies high above most of the water. And that's certainly useful for us. We use infrared data in our occultation research. Mm -hmm. But the most important part for us is that SOFIA can be positioned to where the shadow is, because the shadow of these small objects are not actually any bigger than the objects themselves. Right. So often they're just over the ocean or in the middle of the desert where we don't have any telescopes. Or So having SOFIA be able to be put in the shadow is what makes all of this possible. Right. And how on earth do you make that happen? How do you calculate where this tiny shadow from across the solar system is going to land? That's actually the majority of our work. It's always surprising to people that the um, most difficult part of the occultation observations are not 
observing the event, but figuring out where it's going to be. We yeah, spend right. months measuring the position of the star to accuracies far greater than they are in the catalogs. We spend months measuring the position of Triton as it moves through the sky and carefully extrapolating when the two are going to intersect and then plotting where Triton will cast a shadow in starlight on the Earth. That shadow is the only place where you can see it. And ideally, you want to get right into the center of the shadow so you can get the best data. Okay. Yeah, and um, the MU69 one, um, I was on that flight in July, but that um, this Kuiper Belt object, 7 billion kilometers away, mm-hmm. um, the second this is a target that New Horizons will fly by in January 1st of 2019. Mm-hmm. And um, this will be, the, there was a series of three occultations this past summer, one on June 3rd, one on July 10th, and one on July 17th. The June 3rd occultation, um, Mark Bowie and his colleagues from um, Southwest Research Institute in Boulder, Colorado, they were the mm-hmm. the, the Mike the Michael persons. They were the mm-hmm. guest observers who got their proposal <laughs> yeah. selected. They did a ground-based campaign with a picket fence. So they arrayed 25, um, you know, telescopes, um, half a half a meter, you know, smaller, relatively larger for an amateur astronomer, but mm-hmm. not um, so they could be mobile, and laid them out over South Africa and Patagonia. Oh, I see. And missed the object. Oh, gosh. But, yeah, it was very disappointing. <laughs> yeah, but it was an interesting detective game because it huh. turns out in the time between June 3rd when they got a null result and then planning for the July 10th Sophia flight to intercept it, they had realized that they could improve the prediction of where the object would be by mm-hmm. a refined technique. Because with MU69, they it only been discovered by Hubble Space Telescope in 2014, and yeah, they didn't okay. actually know its orbit that well. Mm-hmm. So they had a new prediction in place. And when we went to go look for it or catch the shadow, we went with the best knowledge of the day, of the, the time. And then seven days later, there would be a third occultation over South America again, wow. um, for which 25 telescopes were laid out, and only five of them caught it. Oh, wow. But we were now using the same predicted position. So a, ch- an, an intri- a change in our knowledge of where that object was. So yeah, it was an initial disappointment, but it made you scratch your heads and you realize that, you know what, we were off by several hundred of kilometers in uh, because we didn't quite know where it was. But right. then we knew where um, they'd read the calculations. They had a new prediction. And um, the, uh, the two events caught the occultation. July t- July 10th and July 17th. Okay, so it's a business of constantly refining and getting closer yeah. and closer. And as Michael had said, a lot of the work is done in um, trying to predict, mm-hmm. you know, where the the event will occur, um, the timing yeah. and the location, and then understanding the star because each occultation, the object's passing in front of a different star, so yeah. you have to study that star. Mm-hmm. If that star is a binary, you you, you want to know that because oh, sure. then you could um, help tease out what you might see. Yeah, definitely. And the um, prediction updates happen right up to the last minute. I was on um, one of the ground teams that Mark Bowie's team deployed to South Africa, and we were getting daily phone calls with slight updates and moving our position around in South Africa, trying to get to the best point. That one missed, but the same thing happened again, as um, Kimberly said, in July, and they managed to get it that time. Wow, my gosh, you're... you're hot on its tail, right? You're I mean, chasing after they were it. called KBO chasers for a reason. Huh. Yeah. Um, you know, that is, is a you know an object that we didn't know much about and we still and it's got an intriguing story. And um, with uh, Michael's Triton occultation, I mean that's the object's been studied for a while. Michael could tell you more about what we know about that, but they were still doing uh, last minute um, changes as Amazing. well. Amazing. <laughs> 
Yeah, with SOFIA, we have the opportunity to put the um, telescope directly in the center. Usually, I do occultation observations from the ground, and the telescope is where it is, and you can't do much about that. Mm -hmm. Although we've had small telescopes in the field, when you get a bright star, you can move the small telescopes around. Right. But with SOFIA, you can put it precisely where you want it. So that makes the um, stakes on the prediction all the higher. So rather than just saying, is it going to happen or not, oh, we're trying yes. to say, can we get to the exact center? And we have to bring the accuracy on the predictions down to kilometers um, and seconds and get the plane in the right place at the right time. Right. So for that sort of thing, SOFIA is ideal, but it certainly means there's a lot more work that needs to be done during the prediction phase. And mm -hmm. that phase lasts right up until the night of the event. Like an hour before we took off for the Triton event, we were changing the prediction. Oh my gosh. And then once the plane takes off, if it takes off on time, because those who travel by airplane, even <laughs> just for business or pleasure, sometimes you don't take off on time. And so the project often has contingencies on designing the flight path to make up time. Or in a case for an airplane, it's often easier to slow yourself down rather than to speed up to intercept a particular location. Oh, yeah. mm -hmm. So there'll be some, um, if you look at the flight paths for the occultations, they'll put in things called trombone legs. These are sort of delay lines such that we can uh, make sure that we can get to the right place at the right time. So um, the predictions are still going on, um, you know, the day before, even sometimes on the flight, but even on the flight itself. Plus, the plane itself is moving with the winds. Oh, of course. So if you're going into a headwind or a tailwind, you you know as much as you could. But once you're in the in flight, you are actually making a lot of calls on the fly, but in the right approach to get the plane to where it needs to be. Right. So oh. it has a very different um, flavor to it. All this action, yeah, it, it does bring a new flavor to the image of doing astronomy, I think, right? It's not all just telescope time booked in advance and sitting there doing your calculations, right? Exciting. It's always impressed me how well oiled the um, flight team and the flight planning team and the aircraft crew are on the yeah. Sophia flights because there's so much happening, you know, while you're in the air, especially when, you know, I'm receiving phone calls from our ground team saying that the prediction has shifted slightly as they get new data. I pass that along to the flight planners. They pass it to the flight crew. The plane moves. And um, it's just a really amazing example of teamwork of so many people getting this done in order to get an event that lasts three minutes long. Oh, that's true, too. It's a fleeting event, but all the more reason to be a well-oiled machine, right? Yeah. And, and the duration of the event depends upon the size of the object. Uh -huh. So it's a three-minute event for Pluto and Triton. For MU69, it was a less than a two-second event. No, two seconds? Because the object was 100 times smaller than Pluto and Triton. So, um, you know, if we're chasing the smaller guys, that, that leads to an interesting, you know, timing problem. Wow. Wow. That puts a new spin on it. Gosh. Time domain astronomy. Mm -hmm. yeah. And a new light, but time domain astronomy with a moving telescope. Right. <laughs> <laughs> While your object's moving as well. Huh. <laughs> and the Earth is turning. <laughs> is that all? <laughs> Let's talk a little more about the MU69 occultation. What are you looking for exactly? Why are we studying this small object out there? Uh, Mark Bowie, the, the guest observer, put in the proposal, and er Elliot Young and his team, their team, uh, they're members of the New Horizons team, and 
the the purpose was this will be our first chance to perhaps get a size of the object because hmm. uh, had it been observed by discovered by Hubble Space Telescope when the New Horizons team was trying to find a another target to fly by after Pluto okay. and within its um, trajectory range. Um, to, to leap forward on that, once this object had been discovered and we knew where it would be in the spacecraft, it's on its way to move there. We didn't know much about it, nor about its environment. So to do the occultations, sort of like uh, what Michael had said about discovering Uranus's rings, where you're curious whether there's rings around this object as well. So we're interested in the, the size, the shape, and um, whether the environment around there. And the environment around the object is of importance to the New Horizons spacecraft because they needed to give a heads up. This would have been about a year and a half before the flyby. And it gives them time to, to adjust how close they want to predict to get to fly by the object. Um, so um, probing uh, the uh, area around the object was of, of, of equal interest to the New Horizons yeah. team. Okay. So oh. Sophia is going to learn many things about the object, MU69 itself, plus allow New Horizons to make the best decisions about That's right. how and, it's um, going to observe up close. Exactly right. And then okay. um, when the um, the detection was made clearly in five of the 25 telescopes in July, that was a, um, a no longer a disappointment, but a great success because it actually pinpointed our knowledge of the position of this object, oh, wow. um, which had been to known to certain errors because it had allowed you a different viewpoint. Um, but then it was a surprising result because um, the five out of the 25 telescopes did not detect the event at the exact same time, hmm. which implied something very interesting about the object such that it most likely is not spherical, and it might even be a binary object, which is um, a high possibility. I mean, there's a lot of binary KBR objects out there in the outer solar system. But that's one interpretation of the data. And our SOFIA data, which also detected it, but we must have grazed not the center of the object, but maybe went down the neck, um, because the duration of our our detection, which was much smaller than anticipated. So again, I think we got a cord across the object. But we have two data sets separated by seven days. Days, um, which uh, feed into understanding the size of the object and where it is. Mm-hmm. And um, there was no indication of any other sort of debris. But um, I see. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we're, we're very excited about the role that um, Sophia played in this field of occultations and to help out New Horizons, another NASA mission. Yeah, cool. So you're still digging through the data to yeah. figure out what exactly you can, can deduce from that occultation, right? Mm-hmm. Neat. Could I ask a little more about the shadow and how you how you find it and what you're able to see? I'm I'm amazed that a shadow can travel that far, be cast that far across <laughs> the solar system and still be something studyable on Earth. I'm not sure what to ask, but is it well. Is it truly a shadow? Is it very 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 faint by the time yeah. it reaches Earth? It's essentially, I mean, it is a shadow. The Mm -hmm. um, stars that are doing the occulting are very, very far away. So Mm -hmm. all the light from them is coming to us effectively. All of it's from the same direction. So that makes the shadow, the light lines at the edge of the shadow very straight. Okay. Um, They're very parallel. So the shadow just gets cast across the solar system. And it moves very quickly, mostly because the things in the solar system are moving, primarily us here on the Earth. Mm-hmm. So the shadows tend to move something like 20 kilometers a second. Wow. And you have to predict exactly where they're going to be when in order to get your telescope in the right place. Yeah. But it really is a shadow. Huh. Um, when there's an atmosphere, it's a little more interesting because the atmosphere around the body acts kind of like a lens. So not only do you get a shadow, but you get a focusing. Hmm. And that makes it um, momentarily in the center of the occultation when it should be the darkest. It makes it 
momentarily bright. That's really? called the central flash, which hmm. is what we're looking for when we try to travel to the middle of the shadow with Sophia. I see. Wow. So that's why it's important to get the shadow's location exactly right so you can be exactly in the center. In the center. I see, because you're going to get more information there mm-hmm. than you would on the sides. All right. Yeah, if yeah. the object has an atmosphere and has that uh, lensing effect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Gives you the central flash. Is that what it was called? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. All right. Nice. So... So when Pluto um, occulted a star back in 2011 and then also again in 2015, um, in 2015 it was two weeks before the New Horizons flyby, um, Sophia was called to action and Michael Person was also the guest observer running the, uh, oh, the show right. <laughs> and um, hadn't obtained uh, measurements of, of Pluto's atmosphere and the central flash. Mm-hmm. And what did we learn from that? What kind of information do you glean from the central flash? The central flash lets you look lower in Pluto's atmosphere than the rest of the occultation because it's focused around the entire planet. You can see light levels far deeper into the atmosphere than you can without the focusing. Mm -hmm. So we get to look in the lower atmosphere. But what we learned from the 2015 event was there had been a debate for decades as to whether or not there was a strong dust layer in Pluto's atmosphere. And we detected it with Sophia by measuring the light levels in the various infrared channels, invisible channels available to the telescope. And the differences between those led us to conclude that um, there definitely was a haze layer, um, very small particle dust throughout the atmosphere. And then this was confirmed just a few weeks later when New Horizons managed to get pictures of the haze during its flyby. Ah, that must have been gratifying. <laughs> oh yes. <laughs> yeah, you, you finally you're you're calibrating the two different techniques. Okay, you're yeah. right. We had been using the occultation technique to monitor Pluto's atmosphere for decades, but we are always comparing occultation data to other occultation data. So it was wonderful during the New Horizons flyby to have some other source of data we could mm-hmm. compare all of our occultations to. Mm-hmm. And as Kimberly said, that basically allowed us to calibrate decades worth of data and really solidify our understanding of how Pluto's atmosphere has been growing and changing, et cetera. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Take, so you take all your occultation data and now you know this relates to this that we can see up close with mm-hmm. New Horizons. Exactly. And, Mike, and, and Michael's doing the same thing with Triton, Neptune's oh, yeah. moon. Right. Tell us more about that. Well, throughout the 90s, we were observing Triton's atmosphere through occultations from the ground here. We had various ground campaigns and observed it several times. And over the course of the 1990s, we noticed that um, Triton's atmosphere was growing. Mm -hmm. Um, There is global warming on Triton. Wow. So we were really hoping to follow up on this. But around the turn of the century, Neptune, the body Triton is orbiting around, Mm -hmm. passed into a fairly sparse star field. There just aren't that many stars. Mm, So since our our last successful observation in 2001, we hadn't had any chances to check out the atmosphere until just this year. Oh, wow. So this October, on October 5th, we got our first good star that Triton passed in front of. Finally. And um, yes, finally. I had been looking for stars for the last decade or so and finally found one. And um, during the occultation, we got our first measurements of Triton's atmosphere in over 15 years. And even now, back in my lab, we are going over that data we got a month ago and hope to have results for what's happening in Triton's atmosphere shortly. That is so cool. Sophia makes this possible. Yeah, without Sophia, we couldn't put the telescope where we need it. I mean, especially with Triton, the occultations are so infrequent. You can't wait for 
an occultation to not only happen, but just happen to pass over a good telescope. Right. So with Sophia, we can move the good telescope where we need it. That's right. But then that puts all the more pressure on getting that flight path just right yeah. to end up just in the center. What if you had missed your one star in a decade? Oh, that would be disappointing. But luckily, we didn't. <laughs> no. Actually, beyond luck, we have an excellent prediction team back at MIT mm-hmm. led by um, Dr. Amanda Bosch and our research assistant, Carlos Zuluaga. And they spend countless hours going over the data, refining the prediction, making updates as we go, and um, call those prediction changes up to me on the plane where I inform the flight planners. And right. as I say, it takes, it takes a lot of people to get these data. But um, we've spent years perfecting how to work as a team. And the Sophia flight people are always on top of their jobs. So everything tends to work out. Yeah, I imagine. And in the case of Triton, the universe finally behaved and mm-hmm. sent us, had an arrangement so that a star was available for an occultation that right. we could yeah. observe. <laughs> Just had to wait. Finally cooperated. Are there upcoming occultations that you're excited about that you could talk about already? Yep. We um, have a successful SOFIA proposal. Um, it was accepted to um, observe an occultation by Titan the um, giant moon of Saturn that everyone is interested in with the deep methane atmosphere. Um, We'll be observing that uh, in July of next year. Very cool. And we are, of course, always on the lookout for more Triton occultations. We have another one coming up in a couple of years that we'll put in proposals to see once we've nailed down where we think it's going to be. Well, that's good. You won't have to wait as long this time. And I know a lot of people are excited about Titan, so they'll be looking yeah. forward to that. Yeah. Yeah. And then with all other large dwarf planets out in the outer, so like um, Haumea, Quaroar, or Maki Maki, where, you know, whenever another, pa- whenever an occultation does, you know, a prediction comes, you know, a proposal will be put into the Sophia Observatory and um, we can make a measurement. Could you tell us about which objects? Um, well, um, I don't know, Michael. I don't think there's any um, occultations coming up until about 2019. Um, but I'm, uh, we were looking at a program to do targets of opportunity, and one of them is for any trans-Neptunian object if it does occur with a stellar occultation. And a trans-Neptunian object is any object beyond sort of Neptune. So okay. it includes Pluto. Mm-hmm. Um, it would include um, some of the larger um, Kuiper Belt objects like Maki Maki or Haumea or um, or Eris, which when James Webb, the James Webb Space Telescope, is launched in a few years' time, um, they could look at those objects too, mm-hmm. a couple pixels across, right. still you know frontier territory there, but combining those type of uh, measurements with the occultations, perhaps we'll find about the atmospheres of these objects, if they do have any atmospheres. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, um, it's a new world out there. Right. And the outer solar system we know so very very little about. What we've learned about Pluto is beyond anyone's expectations and um, old world in itself. And and we're continuing to learn about the moons of the of the giant planets, so Triton mm-hmm. and Titan, right? <laughs> and using those with stellar occultations too. That's exciting. And does Sophia always look at the outer solar system? Is is there any reason to use that kind of astronomy to look at close by objects? Well, um, we are studying other objects in the solar system as well. We have the ability to actually observe Venus because mm-hmm. we can observe objects near um, sunrise and sunset more so than a ground-based telescope or a space-to-space telescope because mm-hmm. we can maneuver the telescope to be pointed closer to the sun. So um, last year we looked at Venus, um, but this year we're also looking at some comets. 
Mm-hmm. So comets are also, um, when they become more uh, vibrant, is when they're closer to the sun. In the past, Sophia has studied Mars, uh, studying its atmosphere. Um, we also searched for uh, plumes on uh, Europa, Jupiter's moon, because those were um, sporadic. Um, so oh, yeah. although we had a null detection, it just meant that we didn't catch it at the right time. Yeah. Um, so we are studying other objects as well. Uh, in the solar system. And uh, we've studied um, the infrared properties of asteroids. Mm. You can measure the thermal properties of a, of a dark asteroid by measuring it in the infrared. And so um, actually on the science flight coming back from Florida, Andy Rivkin from APL was studying some asteroids for a PhD thesis for um, a student. And that was pretty exciting. I don't know whether what data he got, but mm-hmm. uh, we do study a lot of solar system objects as well. That's so exciting. So you guys are all over the Earth and looking all over the solar system with Sophia. Within constraints. <laughs> yes. Um, there, there are certain airspaces we can't fly over. Oh, sure. <laughs> um, there's a lot of restrictions over, you know, even the continental U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but where and, you can fly, you're But where able we to can go. fly um, and how high we fly can help with not just the occultations, the particular latitude, longitude at a certain time, but for the infrared astronomy, the higher you go or the, uh, the where you can get into the stratosphere above the water vapor makes uh, the longer wavelength science um, much more impactful. Mm-hmm. You get because right. if you're studying water in an object, you want to oh, get yes. away from water in our Earth's atmosphere. Yeah, naturally. All right. Well, is there anything either of you would like to add to this story? Well, one of the main reasons we keep doing these occultations, as we mentioned before, is that they're pretty much the only way that we can monitor these objects on an ongoing basis. Mm-hmm. Like um, New Horizons provided fabulous data on Pluto, but that data was all constrained to those few days around the flyby. Yeah, of course. Um, if we want to monitor that and see how Pluto's object, how Pluto's atmosphere changes or evolves in the years to come, we have to keep looking at it from here. Mm-hmm. And um, stellar occultations are the only way to actually get resolvable data on Pluto's atmosphere. Um, so we're just going to have to keep doing it for as long as we can. Right. So there are two kinds of missions that are complementary, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I see. Great. Any final thoughts from Kimberly? Well, you know, we're just delighted that the observatory um, has this um, agile ability mm-hmm. um, and recognition within the community to be able to use it as a tool. I mean, we have a big telescope, a two and a half meter telescope. It's yeah. much larger than the mobile telescopes that can be maneuvered. And so we can do occultations when the star is slightly fainter mm-hmm. um, and also move to um, over the ocean um, right. where the mobile telescopes can't move, or of course the ground, the large glass ground-based telescopes, the eight meters and 10 meters are fixed. Mm -hmm, So um, it's a delight to see this unique um, aspect of astronomy being used by a unique platform, Mm -hmm. the Flying Observatory. It certainly is unique, very cool. Yeah, one of the big challenges in occultation science is that you can't put the stars or the shadows where you want them. You just Mm -mm. have to take them where they are. (laughs) Exactly. many years when you make predictions, two-thirds of them you throw out immediately because they're over the ocean. And now onboard observatories such as SOFIA give us an opportunity to fly out there and actually get all of this data that we were losing. How cool. And um, for those who had um, seen the the great American eclipse or whatever, the the Mm -hmm. eclipse in in August this year, there were several people who chartered airplanes Mm -hmm. to go fly to the path of totality for the same thing. You know, if they weren't 
it's not coming to them, we'll go to you. Yeah, exactly. So the same approach, you know, we'll do it for a stellar occultation as, mm-hmm. as, 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 as several people did with um, getting on a plane and, you know, flying through the path of totality of, right. of, of the solar eclipse that right. we had a couple months ago. It's pretty much the same. It's just as fleeting and probably just as exciting for the scientists, right? <laughs> Very good. All right. Well, thank you both for joining me today. This has been super interesting. And there's be more to come when we have an occultation of Titan, you know, this coming year. That's right. Looking forward to that next year. (laughs) Stay tuned. Maybe we can get you both back in here for another conversation. (laughs) 